my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Victoria Volk. Victoria is a self-published author, advanced certified grief recovery specialist. She's a creator and podcast host of Grieving Voices. She's a Reiki master, a certified UMAP coach, and end-of-life doula. She aims to use her strengths and skills through various offerings to help those whose lives have been upended by grief and loss. Um, help, help them go from surviving to thriving. Now, we're, we're going to dig in uh, a little bit to some of her specialties. And, and I, I really, you know, whenever I get to talk to a Reiki master, because it, it's, it's stuff that uh, just blew my mind when I experienced it myself, because it does kind of seem like some uh, hippie stuff. But, uh, you know, <laughs> It's, it's amazing. Uh, so, you know, we'll definitely dig in there, but um, I, I just want to say, say thank you, Victoria, for coming on and, and, you know, agreeing to share your story and, and what you're passionate about with my audience. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm very much enjoy every opportunity I have to talk about grief and energy healing and all the things. So thank you. We were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your military service before we started recording. So um, I, I want to touch on that a little bit. I'm sure that that played a role in, you know, what you're doing now um, uh, to, to some degree. I don't know to what degree, but uh yeah, thank you for your service. And um, yeah, Victoria was uh, a medic uh, with the with the National Guard, served over there in Iraq, and uh, yeah, not uh, not for the faint of heart. Um, so thank you very much for your service too. Thank you. Um, so let's start where it all began. Uh, where, where were you born and raised and, you know, what were your early influences? You know, I mean, of course your parents, um, you know, maybe what they did, uh, for work and, you know, how that influenced you and, you know, just, you know, you're, you're in North Dakota now. Is that where you were born and raised? Born and raised, never left. I've had experiences elsewhere, but, um, well, I, yeah, I wasn't, I, not that I never, never left North Dakota, put it that way. What's the biggest city in North Dakota? Uh, probably Fargo, NDSU, Bison, if you know the well, Bison. I mean, Fargo's got to be a big city. They made a movie about it, right? Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> oh yeah, our long O's, 
Fargo. Um, everyone thinks we have an accent, but I think like everybody else has an accent. But anyway, yeah, Fargo, I did live in Fargo. I went to NDSU uh, for a time. I was a bison. Um, great place to be 20 something for sure. Um, I'm not sure the population now. I, I can't even tell, I couldn't even tell you, but um, I know Bismarck, which is the capital of North Dakota is I think around 120,000 or something and Fargo's even bigger, but yet not the capital. So, um, but yeah, but I, where I live now and where I was kind of born and raised is very, is small town, very small town. Didn't lock your doors, ran around on your bikes until the, you know, into the night. And um, yeah, it was growing up in the eighties and early nineties, it was um, pretty fun time to be a kid. I'm, I've been watching stranger things with my teenage daughter and that like, whoa, took me way back. <laughs> <laughs> so, cause it's based in the eighties. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was a good time to uh, grow up. I, I think kids nowadays, uh, I don't know. I think that was probably the best decade ever <laughs> not for my life personally because that's when like the shit hit the fan can i swear yeah of course <laughs> when the shit hit the fan for my life but um yeah it was it still very many fond memories of that time just growing up well can um i mean do you mind talking a little bit about that i'm sure that kind of played a role in your your trajectory yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, so my grandmother had been, which was my mother's mom, had been diagnosed with melanoma. And, uh, so she was sick and it didn't take long. And then my father was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And so at one time they were both living, they were both under our roof um, together, both sick. And so I don't, I, I have a, a memory of an, a memory of that, but um, I don't really recall um, a lot about that time. And I think it's because they're just, I think I was being shuffled around a lot because, um, you know, she was dealing with my dad who, who was a veteran, he was v a Vietnam veteran. And so he would go to the VA, which um, was in Fargo to the hospital there, which was like three out over three hours away. Um, and you know, at the time they did not have like a Ronald McDonald type house. And in fact, just last year, I learned that they're building one in the process of building one now, or it's going to be, they're going to be breaking ground on it. And it's still like that. My dad died in 1987 and they're first now getting this house for families to stay in when the veterans being cared for. So the family can stay together. So very far behind in that regard. But anyway, my grandmother ended up dying. And then a year later, or so my dad passed away. So my mom had lost her mom and then her husband. And my sister ended up graduating from high school and joined the Air Force. And so she was like a second mom to me because my mom was busy with my dad and her mom. And so um, it was a lot of change and um, loss in a short amount of time for me. On top of that, I was then. Um, molested by someone the family knew and more than once and so by the time I was a teenager you know 
like even in grief recovery, we talk about a, having a backpack of rocks. And so as a child, you wear a backpack, but all these things that happen to you, consider each one a rock and your debt, your pet dies or your best friend moves away or you move away, your parents divorce or a parent dies, you know, all these things, all these changes, traumatic events that happen are a rock and you just add it to your backpack. And so by the time I was 15, 16, I had a lot of rocks. My mom had remarried uh, shortly after my mom had passed away or my dad had passed away and he was gone a lot. He was a truck driver. And so she would actually leave with him. And so I, I really just learned from a very young age to be resourceful, to depend on myself. And it really just grinds my gears when people say that children are resilient because children don't choose to be resilient. Um, that's something that they don't have a choice. They become resilient because of the circumstances they're in and that's, they find ways to cope. So I was not taught how to grieve well. Grief wasn't something that was talked about in the home at all. In fact, at my dad's funeral, I remember someone saying, I heard, you know, there's all these big people walking around you and I'm here, I'm, you know, this eight-year-old kid. And someone had said, well, she doesn't know what's going on anyway. And so I think that's still something that a misconception about children still to this day is that depending on the age, especially five, six, seven, eight, they don't understand what's going on. That might be partially true. They don't understand necessarily. Um, they don't understand grief. They don't understand what they're feeling. They can't articulate because they don't have the language. But that doesn't mean they don't understand someone going away and never coming back. You know, you see a body in a casket and you see it going in the ground. If kids are not, if you don't communicate what's happening and what that means uh, to the child, they will come up with their own stories. And that's what children do. And I had a very vi vivid imagination. <laughs> and, um, but I, took what happened literal. When you died, you go on the ground and that's it. That's it. There's no continuation of the relationship. There's no, it's like emotionally, physically, spiritually, like it's done, nothing. And so I became very disconnected from my own experience and my emotional experience and became very angry. I was angry at God. I was angry at my mother because she brought this person into the house. My sister left, my dad died, my grandma died, like all this stuff was happening. And I internalized it all. And because my personality is more of a thinker, um, that's where I, that's where my, I spent a lot of time in my own head. And it was, I didn't have a way to express myself. Um, once I became a teenager, I, I found writing, journaling to be very therapeutic. And then my mom read my journal. <laughs> so, so the lack of safety and security and trust and all of these losses that I experienced at, 
as a ripple effect of what I had gone through. Um, just it was like insult to injury. It was just more rocks. And so by the time I actually graduated, um, I couldn't wait just to get out of the house and get on my own and start a new life, start something new. And um, what happened though, is I ended up uh, resorting to alcohol uh, because I still had not addressed anything in my past. And um, by the time I was, well, within probably six months of turning 21, I knew every drink special every day of the week. I should have, my license was almost suspended for fender benders and speeding tickets. And I should have been fired from my job. In fact, um, I don't know why I wasn't because I was late so many times. And um, yeah, I, I, my life could have really, it was, it was heading down the wrong path and it really was going that way. Um, and I was in a toxic relationship too at the time. And I had the courage. I went to a hypnotherapist actually. And although it didn't address my grief or help me address my grief, it did give me the courage to end that relationship. And I did. And then I, my life, I really just went off the rails for a while after that. Um, and then I just said a prayer and I just asked God for someone who was good for me. And uh, I had a real, I had a friendship with someone for seven years at that point. We, he moved to my town. I grew up in, we were going into our junior year and um, you know, he was the guy that picked on me all the time and just annoying as fuck. Like he put a snake in my backpack one time. <laughs> he just was relentless in teasing and whatever. And I just, but we were good friends. Like I always wished him the best and he joined the military and he did, a, he, he went on with his life and I went my way. And, and I said that prayer and you just can't plan these things. Uh, we'll be married 19 years in August and have three kids. So, and I resisted that relationship for quite a while. Like he, you know, I just didn't want to ruin the friendship. We had a foundation of friendship and, um, and I was scared. And honestly, too, I didn't think I was, I thought you don't want to mess with me. I'm, <laughs> I'm a train wreck. Like you don't want me. Um, but fortunately he didn't give up and was relentless and changed my life that changed my life. But like grief happens and experience life goes on and life happens. I had more losses and that opened up all those cans of worms. And I also realized that I wasn't, I actually became becoming a mother, um, really brought up a lot of my old insecurities and actually really a lot of my anger. Uh, I, would have, I referred to myself as an, a ragey mom when my kids were young and actually just had recently an aha moment about that in that, you know, there was an instance with my son and what I have awareness of now around that experience was that he was just amplifying my energy. And, um, 
the energy we bring to our environment, because we are products of our environment, um, but the energy we bring to it impacts everybody else. And having those two losses, I, my father's brother was diagnosed with brain cancer. One thing I didn't mention earlier is that when my dad did die, um, I also lost that entire family. They had nothing to do with me or my family anymore. And so my grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins were no longer in my life either. And so it was always just me and my sister and my brother, and I have an older brother too, and my mom, and I mean, just very tight, close knit. That's just been us. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much in between, more in between there, but um, I just knew I wasn't feeling, I, I just wasn't right. Like in 2014, I kind of had a midlife crisis too. I had a business, a photography business at that time. And my youngest was starting kindergarten and I had so much of my identity wrapped up in that business and being a mom. And um, I, that's when kind of everything started to just hit me, all the grief the years before and realizing how angry I was. And so that's when I started to get the self-help books and read the, you know, get the programs, Tony Robbins and um, got a life coach. And so that's really when my personal growth journey started was in 2014, but it wasn't until 2019 when I discovered grief recovery that my life really changed where that anger was then like, just really let go. Before we dig into that, um, I'm I'm curious, like what what inspired you to join the National Guard? And, and oh yeah, I kind of missed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after I ended that relationship, um, well, no, I was kind of actually the relationship was still happening. Actually, that was part of the toxicity part because while I was gone. I wanted to go to college. So at 18, that was my plan. I was going to go to university and study clinical lab science and um, moved into the dorm room on a Friday and packed the car up and left on, on Monday. Um, I was absolutely scared. I was terrified of finances because I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. I didn't get Pell grants. I didn't get any of that crap. Um, that's really what led me to join the military, but even still I didn't join until for two more years. So I had this epic failure in my mind. Can't even go to college. Like how am I, you know, like who, like I was just so lost at 18. I had no idea. It's like, I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I just felt so many barriers to getting there. And I just did not have any belief in myself that I could do it or figure it out. And I, I just gave up. I gave up on myself before I even tried. And um, I was still in that relationship. So then I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do now? So I followed him. I just moved where he lived, worked two part-time jobs and um, did that for a while. And then I just decided, you know, I really want to go to school. So I joined the guards. I walked in the office, signed the paperwork and 
I was one of the oldest ones at basic training. I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And um, that was a defining moment for me because one of the things you have to do when you sign up in order to join, you have to be able to do one push up. And I barely could squeak out a push up. Like I was so, <laughs> I was so weak. And I was, you know, I was the kid that was like, I was the runt and I was always picked last. I had two left feet. I was not coordinated. I didn't do, I would like try a year of volleyball, but I sucked. I was the kid that was in speech and, you know, the English nerd and the grant. Yeah. So that was more me. And, um, yeah, so I, I saw myself though, in a way that I'd never seen myself before. Um, because I honestly like became a beast. I was like beast mode. <laughs> um, one of the proudest moments still, it sounds so stupid, but still to this day is I actually did more pushups than any other female in that, in my whole group. I did 72 in two minutes. Have I done that again since? No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> but for someone who could barely squeak out one and then doing 72 in two minutes, like I transformed my body in a way that I had never thought possible. And I, I really felt strong and confident. And, you know, that's the one thing about the military is they tear you down to build you up. That's truly what, what happens. Um, I had discipline, I had structure and um, a lot of the things that I didn't have growing up. I had, I believe a mentor and my drill sergeant, I, he called me my Nick, his nickname for me was crazy. <laughs> So I don't know, I take that as a compliment, I guess, but um, it really was the best experience for me at the time. But again, it didn't address my grief. Like I still was this broken child inside. And so um, my husband and I, well, then fast forwarding to, I'm in the relationship now, we ended up getting married and three months after we got married, uh, I got orders for deployment and he was actually just coming off deployment, um, stateside deployment and volunteered to deploy with me. Cause otherwise we had just gotten married. And, um, so they approved it and we both deployed together, but we, they kept us at different fobs, different bases. And that's probably a whole nother story for a whole nother episode, but um, that, that experience was uh, traumatic too, in a lot of ways. And um, you were a, a combat medic and for, and for those listening that aren't veterans, I mean, you're essentially the doctor out there you know, when, when they're on patrol. Yeah. The EMT. Yeah. And our group, we were, we were actually coined. They actually ended up, gave us a nickname. They called us the trailblazers because we were the first group that went to Iraq that cleared roadside bombs. And, um, so my job was, I had a platoon that I was the, um, medic for. And as a medic, we went out, we left the wire every day. My husband left the wire every day. So we knew what each other was doing. Um, 
And because we were at different locations for the first three months, um, I got I, where I was at too. There was nobody else there that we had the New York national guard was there, but it was brand new. Like there was nothing there. Like we got our mail once a week. We got our food brought in. So, which was hit or miss. So if you weren't there when the food came, um, care packages was how we ate pretty much. Um, so I ate a lot of ramen and a lot of mac and cheese. <laughs> um, but you know, it wasn't working for our marriage because we couldn't communicate. I got mail once a week. We couldn't call each other because we didn't know when each other would be like what our shifts were, right? Completely different, you know. And so it he did eventually get approved to come where I was. And but then we had to be in separate platoons and work separate shifts. And so that was a um, whole nother dynamic. And, you know, you might think it, oh, it might, might be amazing to deploy with your husband, but it's really challenging. It's really, you know, how do you be married, right? When they did everything they possibly could to keep us apart for so long. And then to know what each other is doing, it, it was really challenging. But yet at the same time, we are so blessed that we both had that experience together coming home because I can't imagine what the relationships were like for people who were separated. And then when things do happen, like to that, we can understand each other, you know, in that way. And so that, that is the blessing of having had that experience together. Um, but yeah, my family was a long, we, my, every one of my siblings served in the military. My dad, my grandpa was in World War II, my dad, Vietnam. And so it just seemed like a natural thing. Like, well, I can't be the only one not serving, right? So, so I think that kind of was subconsciously in the back of my mind too. Um, but yeah, just, we can't, I came from a family of service. And so um, my uncle, my dad's brother, who he was very close to was um, a cop. He worked, he was a detective canine drug unit and um so yeah I, I think it's just kind of in the blood I guess that when when you came back what you know what did you do for work what did you know how, how did things evolve to lead you on this path that you're on now well it was the two losses that I had I had you know, I closed that business and I pursued writing. I started to write and blog about what I was experiencing in my life spiritually, the challenges I was kind of going through. And um, eventually just, I wrote a book and um, in self-publishing that book and in process of writing that book is when my, I found out about my uncle and I went to see him after 30 years of not seeing him and him being in my life. I knocked on his hospital door he was in the hospital at the time. And I didn't know if he'd recognize me, if he'd want to see me. I mean, he had brain cancer. I didn't know what to expect. Um, but what happened was we had a beautiful connection. And um, 10 minutes after I got there, there was a knock on the door. And here it was his daughter, my cousin, and another cousin from another aunt who I didn't even remember ever meeting from Connecticut. And or no, Massachusetts, and she was from Minnesota. And so we had this little reunion of sorts, like, 
you know, after 30 years, full circle, literally 30 years, almost to the pretty close to the day. It was even the same month, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I had six months with him to reconnect and really heal, um, heal the story that had been passed on to me because really it wasn't my belief and it wasn't my story. It was just something that was fed to me, you know? Um, and I think that's what happens a lot, you know, with, with children, you're in the situation and your, your parents are, you know, they, they believe something so strongly, they get you to believe it too. But when I heard he was, had cancer and was essentially dying, they didn't, I didn't know, like it was pretty bad. I, there was no doubt in my mind. I had to go see him. None whatsoever. I, I didn't hesitate. It was just, I need to go see him. And, and I think it was, I don't know if it was my dad. I don't know, but like, I just felt this pull and I needed to go see him. And it was very healing. I think for both of us and a beautiful experience for me and really helped me in the process of right. My book was in the editing phase at that point, but kind of a full circle moment really for me. Again, you can't plan this stuff. It's just, you know, yeah. we, you can't plan for it. And um, yeah. And then I lost another a friend that, I mean, she became, and she's still living, right? So it's, people can, we can lose relationships with people living and it can be very devastating too. And that that's, I lost a friendship that meant a lot to me. And and that's when I realized I wasn't okay and needed to address my grief and went to Google and found grief recovery. What's the name of your book? Uh, the Guided Heart. The Guided Heart. Moving Through Grief and Finding Spiritual Solace. And that came out of you blogging about the mm -hmm. stuff that you were going through and, and your healing process. Yep. I knew I wanted to write a book. I just didn't know. I, I knew that's something that I would, that I always wanted to do. I just didn't know when or what it would look like or anything like that. And I was just, I really, the, the idea behind it was to just share what I was learning along my journey. What's been, what was helping me at the time where I was at. And it would be a very different book today. Uh, there's so much more that I know and what I've learned about myself and about what I've learned about grief. And there's some things I wish I could take out of it, you know, um, that I was, you know, misunderstanding like most of the population about grief, but. Um, well, that's, that's your second edition, right? Oh yeah. I definitely have another book in me for sure. Maybe even two. Tell me about the, the certifications that you got and and I don't know, maybe the timeline, uh, you know, one leading to the next. And I mean, did, did you know that you wanted to get all of those or was it like, as you were learning about different modalities, you're like, Oh, I got to get that. Yeah. And I think that's a great question because that is really what happened. Like after I addressed the grief, it was like, I felt like my, my heart just was cracked open. And I saw opportunities and I looked forward to the future. I felt like this is what I meant to do. Like this, this is who I am. This is what I know. Unlike anything else, I know grief. And 
and I want to help people. I'm a helper. And, um, I know how much it changed my life. And like, I, and that's a, such a good question because I find myself saying that everything, all the achievements I've had, aside from writing the book, all the achievements I've had, um, happened because I went through grief recovery because I addressed my grief because I was open to new experiences. I was open to learning something new. I was open to growing and expanding and look, looking to see where my potential can lead me. And when you're in grief and you just feel like your life is just meant to be one of suffering, you don't see opportunity. You don't see your own potential. You don't see what's possible. So it cracked me wide open and has led to every, like everything has led to something like to the next thing, to the next thing. I've followed my curiosity and we just, we don't give ourselves that time or space to, to follow that curiosity or to, you know, let the passions of our heart guide us. We just, we don't give ourselves that time or space. So I want to basically tell my own experience with Reiki and energy work, because it was one of those things where I had hit rock bottom. Um, it was actually, you know, I had gone through a couple of different uh, treatment programs for my PTSD and, you know, part of the PTSD, like there, there's childhood trauma, there's, you know, the, the deaths of my brother, my mother, my grandfather, all, you know, my, my brother was like, that was the first real like devastating loss where I, uh, I'd been in the fire service for, you know, 11 years at that point and had seen a lot of stuff. Um, and just, you know, shoved it down and like, I, I could insulate myself from what those people were feeling because I had never experienced it. So, you know, it was easy to just, you know, oh, sucks to be them. And then my brother passed away unexpectedly. And, uh, I mean, it rocked my world and changed me forever. Um, and, and I didn't realize how much it had impacted me and my relationships and all that, but it, it also made me aware of that, that feeling of loss that people experience. And when I went back to work, I mean, it was my first shift back and I, I went on a call where uh, a young man passed in very much the same fashion as my brother and the family was, I mean, they were, they were hurting. It was, it was horrible. And then I had never done this before. Um, but it became something that I did moving forward when I would be on a call where, 
you'd arrive on scene, but the person, they were already gone. There was no, uh, no way to, to treat them. It would, you know, it, it would be something where they had passed hours before where somebody found them and they were already deceased. And then, you know, we arrive on scene and the family's in the midst of like this anguish, um, you know, the, 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 that guttural pain that I never understood before losing my brother. And now I'm there and I would, you know, tell the crew cause you know, not everybody's comfortable sitting in a room full of that kind of emotion. So I'd say, Hey, you know, go get the rig cleaned up and, um, you know, I'll be out in a minute. And I would go to the kitchen, get a couple of glasses of water, you know, sit down with the family and just be there with them. Didn't have to say anything. And I, and I think that that's probably the most important piece is like not saying anything, just being there. Because what can you really say to somebody that just lost somebody that they love? There's nothing that you can say that's going to bring any kind of comfort. It's just holding space for them, letting them feel that. Uh, and just have some humanity, you know? And, um, and so moving through my career and, and like, basically putting band-aids on, you know, and then going, yeah, I'm good. And then move forward and suck up some more, you know, put some more rocks in the backpack and push forward, you know? Um, and then, I mean, you, you can't take on everything. I mean, at some point uh, that backpack is going to bust and, you know, that's, why I try and talk to people about addressing the trauma before your backpack busts open, because that's when, that's when people feel hopeless and they take their own lives. Uh, and you can't see that it's just temporary, that that pain you're experiencing isn't going to last forever. You can't even fathom that it's going to go away because it's so visceral and painful so you know i i go through my career things uh end earlier than i i wanted to and i ended up uh seeking more treatment end up going to a uh, a ptsd retreat in south dakota and really one of the most incredible experiences i've talked about it before on this show and it was actually a guest on the show was the one that told me about it and kept on calling me telling me did you put the app you know asking me did you put the application in yet did you like if you're not gonna do it just tell me and i'll leave you alone and this is a retired navy seal guy uh, ross monroe um incredible human being 
uh, incredible man and just uh, an incredible example of, uh, you know, just, you know, that, that will to keep on pushing regardless of what's ahead of you, you know, he, he, I don't know his full story, but I know he experienced a lot of loss, um, not just in combat, but, you know, when you talk about the 22, uh, you know, he lost a lot of teammates that way. And, and, and then there were some that he sent to Sacred Mountain Retreat in Deadwood, South Dakota, and it changed their lives. He went through the program himself, and now he was like telling me, you got to do this. And I just felt like, you know, I'm not like, uh, I don't even fit in with like, I mean, you guys were combat, like badasses. Like I, I didn't do any of that shit. Like I, that's not where I need to be. I don't think, but he was convinced it was, and I didn't want to piss him off. So I, I applied <laughs> and I went and there's all these things that you do there, but it's peer on peer stuff. And then there are people that come out. There's a guy that does blacksmith stuff with you. There's uh, an individual that does equine therapy. And then there was this woman, just amazing. Her name is Tara McKaylee. She's a, like, uh, she's a Reiki master, uh, massage therapist, She's got this amazing place um, there in South Dakota, but she actually brings her team to the, the Sacred Mountain Retreat and sets up and they do the uh, cold therapy. What is that called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? With the, I don't. The liquid nitrogen. Anyways, it, hmm. it is amazing, but that was the first time I'd ever had anybody do any kind of Reiki stuff on me, and I had no idea what she was doing, and it wasn't until after everybody had had their massage, and we were all sitting around like, man, I don't even know what happened, like, <laughs> and every single person cried like it was this emotional release and it was just she didn't even touch you know during that it was just and you could feel it and that's where i was like oh this is like some crazy voodoo shit you know <laughs> and uh but i ended up going to i was getting certified as a coach through this one um entity and we did this big retreat uh well it was little but it was you know uh, like seven days of just all day training and uh had another reiki practitioner and it's like what the hell is going on with this shit you know and uh and 
And so when I came home, I found a Reiki practitioner that, you know, I, I don't think that I'm, I fit like the kind of description of somebody that typically goes to one of those places that you get energy work done. Um, but I was like, yeah, you know, this will be my third time. Uh, I don't understand it, but I know what I feel. So have at it. And I went for quite some time and every time it was, uh, I, I mean, I can't even explain it, you know, to be able to feel stuff moving in your body when they're not even touching you. Um, and you were talking about the tuning forks and she does that as well, which oh. I was like, I just thought it was to set the mood until you said something. I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> it, in it, yeah. It, my own family is like, that's like witchy voodoo <laughs> stuff. You can't, and I personally too have a hard time explaining it because how do you explain what you can't see, right? It's almost like blind faith. And something you just have to experience in order to, you know, and I think it, it can be really difficult for people who don't have a response or notice something happening. It's in my mind, and it's my theory that they're just not as in tune with themselves. Because once you start to work through stuff, that does start to happen more. You start to notice, you have more awareness about what you're feeling and what you're sensing and what you're experiencing within your own body. Because what happens with grief and trauma, trauma is what happens and grief is what's left. We disassociate from our own bodies. We are, that's why they say like yoga is, it's all about just getting into your body. And for people who grew up with, you know, let's say you were in a home of instability and walking on eggshells and that fight, fight or flight kind of environment on an ongoing basis, or you've had a lot of trauma and things happen. Um, you, you have a difficult time being within your body. Um, so yeah, the, the tuning forks and the biofield tuning is really addressing what's in our, our energy field no. where Reiki is the energy that's you know, within our body. I, I didn't put this together until just now. So I'm, you're probably familiar with, uh, his name is Bessel van der Kolk. Yes. Mm -hmm. he, he wrote the body keeps the score. And yes. Early on. One it's a of, hard book to read. <laughs> right. Well, so <laughs> I read it years ago. Uh, it was one of the books that the therapist was like, listen, just read this. And it explains a lot. And I read it and I'm like, I don't know, doesn't, doesn't resonate with me. And then years later, I actually, I got the audiobook now. So I'm listening to it and he's talking about the energy and I mean, they're measuring this stuff in the brain 
with the, you know, uh, what is it, nuclear MRI stuff where they can see where the brain activity is when certain stimulus is applied. And they found that what you're talking about, those childhood traumas, uh, especially when, you know, maybe the child was exposed to severe, you know, physical abuse or sexual abuse, where they can talk, you know, they'll talk about feeling separated from their self and they're like watching what's happening to their body. Mm -hmm. And they can replicate that by stimulating that part of the brain where they can actually make you feel like you're out of your body. And I'm like, well, that's so creepy. But there's, there's so much that doctors understand, but that I don't think unless we've actually gone through this journey and done the reading and the research and had things explained that you can start to see that there's all these different aspects to our body, our mind, our energy. They're all tied together and trauma can separate and like dislocate our our sense of self and it just causes so much internal turmoil that we but it goes on it's a chronic experience where you adjust to it and that's normal now well and it changes your whole body chemistry changes especially as a child those developmental years it changes how your brain develops um, it is, if you were, if it was a, if it was a difficult, I can actually tell in biofield tuning, if you had a really difficult birth or if like things will come up of you being in the womb, I've had emotions of the mother come up of being in the womb. This stuff is stored in our energy fields, stuff that I shouldn't, like, I don't know these things but these things are coming up. And so that's the theory is that our memories are actually stored in our energy field and it informs our body and the symptoms, the things that we experience within the body are symptoms of what's out in the field. And that's just the science of it is that I totally geek out on the science of it because it, you know, we can talk and meditation. You were talking about that out of body experience like that's what we can do that with meditation yeah you know where we feel disconnected so this is yesterday i interviewed tom spooner who is a retired delta force guy and be i i just finished a book that was written by some command sergeant major that was one of the founding members of delta force and we were talking about how they were trained to do this biofeedback to, you know, slow their heart rate. And they can, you know, if they're laying and wait, you know, as, as a sniper for days and it's freezing cold, they can 
warm up individual parts of their body. Okay, that foot's getting cold. Let me warm it up. But they're not moving. They're just this meditative intention. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it sounds like just voodoo, crazy hippie stuff, but it's legit. And uh, I I always find it really interesting when military special forces people talk about that spiritual side of their training. Maybe they don't use the word spiritual, but it's it's that uh that ability to go inward and focus your energy in a certain way and the fact that you can do that should be proof that there's like you have this energy i i just it's uh we are so powerful and we don't even know what. Yeah. So when you're working with people, can you, can you talk a, a little bit, like talk me through the process of how you, I don't know, work with somebody that, you know, whether they're dealing with PTSD or it's, it's just, you know, overwhelming grief and they they want desperately to heal from this and and you work with them to address these issues but it's in uh, a way that it's not typical for like you know people that get sent to treatment for ptsd they're not going to send them to somebody like you because it's got to be like a psychiatrist. We're going to give you pills and then you'll get some therapy. And if you're not better in a month, then uh, no, you might be broken. <laughs> yeah. And to that, I say, that's really sad. You know, I went to a VA mental health summit where I was in rooms of therapists, psychologists, social workers, um, and some soldiers shared their personal stories of wanting to end their own lives at one point. And that entire day, there was vendors, like people had booths set up. I had a booth there and talking about grief recovery and stuff, but not a once was the word grief ever used. It was about suicide prevention, but not a once was grief talked about. Not a once. That just blew my mind. And you know, even Brene Brown has never talked about grief until COVID-19. So the, the thing is, is grief isn't sexy. It's not a topic that people really, truly want to talk about. You know, it's sexier to talk about resiliency and, you know, all these other buzzwords, right? Grief isn't a buzzword. But it's the only thing, the one and only thing that everybody deals with, but nobody wants to talk about. But is at the root. It really is the root of what's where pe- why people are struggling. Because we are in relationship with people. And people disappoint us. 
people abuse us, people let you down. And we are products of our childhood. So whatever happened in your childhood, we, we say childhood, adulthood is childhood reenactments. So this is why behaviors repeat themselves, patterns repeat themselves, because as parents, we pass on to our kids what, what we know. Well, where did we learn what we know? From our parents. So that generational learning, whatever your beliefs are about grief, whatever your beliefs are about money, whatever beliefs your beliefs are about, like if you grew up in a home, this is interesting too, like you can grow up in a home where everything is like, you know, positive, where positivity is reinforced, even in the times of challenge or, you know, difficult times, times of grief, you can grow up in a home where it's positive. Well, you know what, we'll get through this, but you don't talk about the grief. Or you can grow up in a home where it's all negative, where it's fight or flight, walking on eggshells, a lot of anger, chaos, things like that. Again, grief isn't talked about. In both instances, grief isn't talked about. So you can grow up in a, in a seemingly healthy environment and still not know what to do when you lose someone you love. And so it doesn't matter which environment you grew up in. We all just grow up with these, the misinformation about grief. This is why people grieve alone. They don't reach out for help. Because maybe you were taught, you know what, don't feel bad. You'll find another girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or career, place to live. There's plenty of fish in the sea, right? Sure. Don't feel bad. Replace the loss. You know, uh, time heals all wounds. Um, there's these myths that we all grow up with. And we pass them on to our kids. And so it really is about breaking that cycle. And learning new knowledge, and then applying that new knowledge to your life. And that's what grief recovery gave me and lots of other people. Well, can you talk about the grief recovery process? Like what is, what does it look like? It is action-based and it's the only evidence-based method for addressing grief. Kent university did a study and the program, like just to work one-on-one -on -one with someone, it would be seven weeks, but um, I incorporate grief recovery and something called UMAP, which really takes, you know, once you address the grief, it's like, well, what now do I want to do with my life? Which is kind of where, you know, it's like, I saw all this possibility and potential, right? So what now? That's where UMAP was the missing piece in the work that I was doing with clients. And so it creates what's called a UMAP, and we look at your, your strengths, we find your top five strengths, your values, because our values really dictate a lot of our behaviors and the choices that we make. And we can dishonor our own values or other people can dishonor our own values. That creates grief for us. Um, and then we look at your skills, your preferred skills, and then, and also like your personality, like what your interests are. And so, to create a path forward and to help you discern where to put your focus and where to, what opportunities to take advantage of or, and so forth. So for working with me, it's 12 weeks 
in my program, I call it do grief differently. Um, but once you learn the tools of grief recovery, it's rinse and repeat. You can apply it to so you can apply it for the rest of your life to all relationships. I've applied it to my relationship with alcohol, to money, to relationships with people living, to those who have passed away, to my molester. Um, it gives you, it, it lets you give voice to what is emotionally incomplete. So you can really, truly let it go. So interesting. Like, like I've been doing something I, very similar to that, like just <laughs> by, by chance. Like it, it just makes sense to evaluate your values and identify what your what your true purpose is and create a plan of action to to take yourself from where you're at to where you ultimately want to be fully realizing that things change so you have you know wiggle room you know you're not like locked into one path uh, because you have your values and you know what your purpose is so you know whatever curveballs life throws you you know that you can rely on your values and who you are i i think that's really important i think that's what you're talking about like their personality and really helping somebody discover who they truly are, because it's, in my experience, what I did in my own life is my whole identity was the fire service. That was who I was. And if you had asked me who I was, that's, I would have given you some answer that revolved around the work that I did in the fire service. But my purpose I was just expressing my purpose through that work, through that occupation. My purpose hasn't changed. I'm no longer in the fire service, but I'm still, once I figured that out, um, that, was, that was huge for me. And that piece with, I, I wanna say that this has gotta be very close to what you're talking about, but the way that I found effectiveness, like, cause I, I really struggled with forgiveness. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of different counselors, practitioners, whatever, tell me, you know, this is, it's very important to forgive. Well, you know what? I don't want to forgive any of those fuckers, you know, like, they deserve to burn in hell. I don't, you know. And I say that in a way that essentially 
my form of forgiveness is uh, like, I just don't like the word. It's, it's got a, a tone to it that I don't like. So I shy away from it. And I shied away from that whole process just because of the word and, and mm. the implication that, you know, being raised in a church and, you know, forgiveness is like, you're washed and clean and, you know, nobody knows what you did and it's okay because it's no longer there. Well, bullshit, you know what you did to me and I know what you did to me and I still suffer from those experiences. And the loving kindness meditation that I, this was very recent, but it was like huge for me it's like going through this meditation, like expressing this love and grace for yourself and then expressing it towards somebody else in your, in your life. And then somebody uh, that's further out in your circle of community or whatever, and then out towards somebody that has wronged you and and if you are struggling with that, okay, well, now let's go back to you. Because if you're struggling with that, then that must mean that there's still more healing that you need to do. Because it's that, that pain is inside us. It's like they could probably give two shits that you're still hurting from it. So you're constantly carrying this weight around with you still. It's not hurting anybody but you. So now let's, let's heal that injury and give ourselves some grace and some love. And, and it's, I, I feel like it was this huge energy shift in me to where I was able to go back in this meditation and express some loving kindness towards these people that have done horrific things to me. And um, and so, in a sense, I forgave them, but I still don't feel like that's the proper word for it. Mm. Yeah, and in grief recovery, that is difficult. I mean, in the work that I do with people, like even for myself, it's that's difficult to because here's the thing: like forgiveness doesn't mean condoning. Yeah, and forgiveness is for you it's not for them. And so there is a way that we can kind of sidestep that word in the work that I do with clients and in grief recovery, but it really is, um, for me personally, like it was a game changer for me to be able to really forgive in my way, right? Like in this way of, because here's the thing, a part of the process is really putting voice to what you want to say, saying everything you need to say so that you can forgive. And the thing is, is you don't have to have that person sitting in front of you. You don't have to have them to be alive even for you to articulate and put into words uh, 
what you need to say in order to forgive. And so it is a, it is a process. And, um, but yeah, there is a way to like sidestep that, that specific word, because it can be challenging for people, especially in the case of abuse. It's been over a period of time, me really working on that because it, isn't it crazy how long that shit sticks with you? And so stuff that I had thought that I had dealt with a long time ago, really just, you know, when you start approaching the idea of forgiving somebody, oh, shit. That's when it comes up if you haven't actually mm -hmm. dealt with it. And so that was a big discovery for me. <laughs> it's like picking a scab. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but what, what I like about what you're talking about is that, I mean, the stuff that I'm doing, it's just, you know, me happening upon some philosophical stuff and going, well, let me see if this works. Um, I, I like actually having some evidence based, it's always better for somebody like me to like have some tangible proof, like, yeah, this stuff works. And, you know, these, uh, situations if applied in this method and you go like, okay, you can expect some results from this. So and that was, that was what I was looking for. Right. Cause I'm, I'm a thinker. I'm very much a thinker and in my head. And so I was looking for something. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to be on someone's couch for three years. You know, like I tried all this other stuff. I tried to do it on my own. It doesn't work. We can't heal on an Island, but if people are interested in just learning more about grief and education that they've never received, most likely, um, check out the book, the grief recovery handbook. And I can send you a link for that for the show notes, but um, that will give you the foundation of really what grief is, help you connect some dots in your own life. But it was developed by a Vietnam veteran. He's since passed away in the last, uh, maybe, well, then the past, past year he passed away, but he, you know, he was a Vietnam veteran and him and his wife had a baby and the baby did not make it their baby died and his life just fell apart they got a divorce and he went to the beach and he was going to kill himself and he thought what do i he had a question come to his head what do i wish would have been there for me and he was working as a contractor at the time and just started um th that one question stopped him and he just started having conversations with people the men he was working with and things like that and that's how it came to be it's been around for over 40 years, uh, but it's only in the last, I'd say five, his son took over. And so he's really brought it online and, you know, social media and things like that. So now it's becoming more known, but um, transformative, transformative. Uh, I had a, actually um, Sandy Derby, there's an episode on my podcast uh, with Sandy Derby, her own father and her uncle, uh, satanic satanic ritualistic sexual abuse was happening in her family with her and she became a meth addict in adulthood and grief recovery changed her life and she's like she's had like one of the marketing she's the head of marketing 
for the Institute. Wow. And a coach herself. So yeah, it's, that's a great episode to really understand. It, it doesn't matter the loss. This method works for anybody. For those listening that that want to check out your podcast and and connect with you, what's the best way for for somebody to do that? Yeah, my website theunleashedheart.com and I'm also on Instagram at theunleashedheart. I have all my links on my website and grieving voices is found everywhere. The first 10 episodes actually of my podcast is a lot of what's um, the foundation of grief, like what it is and digs kind of um, what you would learn in the book, kind of in a, and it is on, the book is on Audible as well, too, by the way, so. Awesome. All right, well, I will have all that information in the show notes and, uh, and just extremely grateful that, that we were able to connect and, and that you were willing to come on my show and, and share. Um, and, and I hope the, you know, the people listening uh, can maybe get past any uh, blocks, you know, to, you know, the discussion about energy work. Cause I know that that was kind of a thing for me, but I mean, I'm living proof. I've experienced it. It's like legit. So it's amazing. It, yeah. And I didn't understand it either until after grief recovery. I, I'd never even had a Reiki session before I went to get certified. I just felt this pull to it. Like it showed up in conversations and like randomly random places. And I was, you know, when you, when you address your grief and you kind of be, become more open to receiving messages and receiving downloads or whatever you want to call it, or insights, intuition, whatever, um, pay attention. Like, just like Reiki was just knocking me on the head and it just opened me up. I had a really, uh, ex incredible experience too, with my level one and two, um, that really brought up something for me that I needed to heal. Uh, so it, yeah, it's really opened my eyes to the energy work of the energy of grief, even it's heavy, yeah. it's heavy. And we either implode or we explode physical symptoms. It manifests or we outwardly express it with addictions and anger and, you know, gambling or shopping or pornography L list goes on and on. So one thing before you go, I, I just, it, it came to my head. Uh, one of the things in, I don't know, maybe yesterday or the day before when I was listening to uh, The Body Keeps the Score, he was talking about the impact that human touch, just human contact can have on, you know, healing trauma um, and we do ourselves a huge disservice by isolating ourselves you know because nobody can understand what I'm going through like nobody else's experience you, you know because I that's how I felt like nobody could really understand what I'm going through but 
geez, you know, like what the statistics are staggering as, as to what one in five boys and one in three girls experiences some kind of uh, sexual assault by the time they're 15. Like, shit. And I just, uh, and you carry that. And, you know, I, I've talked about this on other episodes, but the ACE study, you know, adverse childhood experiences and, you know, those experiences, unless they're, they're dealt with, unless you work through that trauma, address it, you're, you're predisposed to actually experiencing symptoms of PTSD, you're, you know, and then if you go into a field voluntarily, like a field of service where you're going into law enforcement, fire, combat, you're putting yourself in harm's way, whether it's, you know, helping people or you know, you're running towards the gunfire or running into the fire, whatever, you know that you're going to expose yourself to more trauma and you're already predisposed to PTSD. And then you act like nobody could possibly know what I'm going through. So you don't lean in for that human touch, that human connection, and just that can be so healing. Based on what he was saying, the research is there. Um, just that having a connection, an, an emotional connection with somebody can be very healing. Based the, yeah, connection is the antidote to suicide is what research is, is showing essentially, like you just said, and um, Bessel actually had, um, there's a fantastic interview he did with Krista Tippett of On Being, um, very good episode on that. But I actually, at the VA Mental Health Summit, I walked up to one of those therapists and I asked her, why don't they use the ACE study as a screening tool for people joining the military? There's no answer for that. Why don't they? And like you just said, for even firefighters or policemen, people that see and deal with all of this, you know, where you see, you witness, you're a witness to loss day after day or time after time, unless you have that support within the organization. Maybe you have a resident Reiki master, right? Or somebody that you can refer your employees to, but a lot of places don't have that capacity or ability or just don't. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it should be a screening tool and we could definitely uh, nip a lot of trauma in the bud, <laughs> um, but not ditch those people then either, right? Like. And here's the thing, you go to the doctor, they never ask you what happened to you. Never. So yeah, totally on board with what you just said. And we're on the same wavelength there. Well, I find it interesting that it, it seems like people that have had 
uh, you know, uh, uh, their fair share of those adverse childhood experiences are drawn. If they don't go the self-destructive route, they're drawn mm -hmm. to a life of service where they want to be the person to keep people from getting hurt the way they were hurt. Right. But even helpers need helpers. Yep. Man. Thank you so much. This Thank you. A really cool conversation. I think so too. I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll have all your links in the show notes and, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to being on your show too. Be pretty cool. Absolutely. Going to go deep. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.